Greetings and peace, loved ones. I pray everybody is in a state of beauty and expansion. This podcast is with Ali Hussein, who is a doctoral candidate in Islamic studies in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at the University of Michigan. Um, I've known this brother for a few years, and we corresponded. We have shared interests, um, particularly in uh, Sufism, uh, Islamic mysticism, and uh, particularly in the thought of Ibn al-Arabi and uh, Mawlana Rumi. So he's doing his doctoral research on the thought of Muhyiddin Sheikh al-Akhbar ibn al-Arabi, who is uh, one of the most famous and well-known Sufi thinkers in the West, even though he's far less well-known than Rumi. I think the reason for that is Rumi is very accessible in the sense, um, and he has profound beauty and wisdom uh, that just emanate love. But it's poetically drawing from all aspects of shared human experience. Um, whereas Ibn Arabi, <laughs> um, he's not Sufism one-on-one. He is uh, a very difficult writer in many ways, very complex. And um, his work is very beautiful. It was really after I got exposed to the poetry of Rumi and Hafiz and some of the Persian poets, it was the fact that I found a book on Rumi's thought that um, drew me to take up a serious study of Sufism and Islam. Um, That was about 12 years ago now, and uh, I guess I've been studying it ever since. But that was what really drew me to the path, not just uh, to study it and not just to appreciate the poetry, but actually to uh, commit myself to it. So uh, his thought is particularly about Jesus and the thought of Ibn Arabi, which uh, is a fascinating topic. So we talked about that, and we talked a lot about art and the role of artists uh, and and the relationship between creativity and spirituality. And um, yeah, I think I'll just let you guys dig it. So if you have any comments or questions or thoughts or suggestions about the podcast, feel free to send us an email to connect at barakablue.com. If you want to support, tell your people. If you want to support and you got some extra uh, money to support with, then you can go to patreon.com slash pathandpresent. Yes, here it is. One love. So, alhamdulillah, it's, a, it's a great to have you on here, Habibi. And, uh, I love it, And, um, yeah, so I know you are a lover of Muhyiddin Sheikh al-Akbar ibn Arabi. And we share that. We share that. In fact, ibn Arabi was really the, the great pull for me. After I got exposed to Rumi's poetry and fell in love with Sufi poetry, and then, of course, was in love with kind of the, the spirit and activism of, like, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of my first exposure to the general Islamic tradition. Of uh, course. Somehow, 
uh, which was a kind of strange story, but maybe for a later date, uh, I came across the works of Ibn Arabi. And that was, for me, just the profundity of the, the depth and the, the cosmology and the kind of like philosophical approach, in a certain sense, to mysticism and to mm-hmm. uh, just understanding the human being and the, and the, 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 the just existence itself. Um, yes, that was yes. for me like more profound than anything I had ever read in all my studies of the various world wisdom traditions. So uh, perhaps you could introduce Ibn Arabi for those that aren't familiar, and then talk about your own uh, calling to to work with him. Inshallah, absolutely. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alamin. Wa sallallahu sallam. Barak ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi ajma'in. Um, it's really difficult to describe Ibn Arabi as you mentioned and to try to introduce, you know, who this person is. And it's amazing because I feel that, and I, I think in a sense you would agree, that Ibn Arabi is more well known in the West than he is in the East um, for multiple reasons. Uh, but I think the best way to describe him is as, um, someone like William uh, James Morris described him by saying that without much of, uh, uh, you know, of, of an over-exaggeration, uh, just as Plato, uh, his thought was kind of like the climax of Greek philosophy and that everything after him kind of was an end note or an after just an afterthought to his 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 own emanation. Ibn Arabi is kind of like that for for uh, not only Sufism, not only Islamic spirituality, but actually also for Islam in general and humanity in general. So he was born in the 12th century and uh, 1165 in Spain, um, and he at a very young age he was born on the east coast of Spain in a city called uh, Marcia and then towards his childhood he migrated and that was kind of like the beginning of uh, an age-long travel where he was just traveling all the time he moved to Sevilla on the west coast and then already in his teens he had many spiritual rebirths Um, his first teacher as he says although he was Muslim his spiritual teacher uh, the first one was Sayyidina Isa, Sayyidina uh, Jesus, um, may peace be upon him. And he would continue to inherit from multiple prophets, uh, some kind of spiritual inheritance, and he would meet with them in the spiritual realm. And then he began to travel extensively, uh, basically from his late teens, early 20s, all over North Africa, all over the Iberian Peninsula, southern Spain, to Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, and then uh, towards the middle of his life, when he was about 30 years old, he went on a migration and migrated east. Uh, And he lived there, and obviously visiting numerous places as he did in the west, so he went to Cairo, uh, Hebron, Anatolia, Iraq, um, and then he finally settled in Damascus, where uh, he died and he and he's buried in, in uh, he died in about 1238. So he lived about 60, 63 years old, exactly the age of the Prophet Muhammad. And 
you know, that's just kind of like a snippet of his life. And I think if I'm trying to kind of explain what is the big deal about Ibn Arabi, it's it. I can answer that with also the answer to the question of what attracted me to him. Mm -hmm. um, I stumbled upon Ibn Arabi while I was applying for the PhD program. So my relationship with him is literally four or five years old. Um, as I was reading various works on intelligence um, and what is the meaning of intelligence. That was my initial interest in the PhD program. Um, I and, and I left that eventually after I got introduced to Ibn Arabi. Uh, and now it's my research is on Sayyidina Isa, Jesus السلام, in the writings of, of Sheikh Al-Akbar Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi. But when I, stumbled, when I stumbled upon Ibn Arabi, I stumbled upon a story that happened to him when he was a child. And this was when he migrated with his family from the, his hometown of Marcia in eastern Spain to the city of Sevilla. And he must have been maybe like nine or ten years old at the time. And he says, as I'm traveling in the countryside of Iberia, of Spain, I look at the trees and I noticed that the leaves always fall during the fall, during the autumn, and they die in the winter, and then new leaves are born in the spring. And there is this aspect of the tree that always goes through a change. It never stays the same. And yet the tree itself, the trunk of the tree and the root of the tree is constant. So he's like, there is these two aspects of the universe, an aspect that always goes through a change and an aspect that is always constant. And he's like, the thing that is constant that which we know and feel deep in our hearts is always constant is the divine essence. Mm -hmm. And that which always goes through the cycle of birth, growing to old age, and then dying and withering away is actually the kind of, he would say, the names and attributes, the like incessant, continuous, infinite manifestations, appearances, forms, and images as soon as one comes, it goes away and dies. And he says those two things combined together, they're opposites. There is an aspect of creation that doesn't change and an aspect of creation that goes through constant change. He says those things together is what the Sufis call intoxication. Hmm. Because when you're faced with that, uh, the, 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 the kind of constant with the change together, it puts you in a perplexity because you can't we can't understand it with our aql with our minds right. the mind only understands things that are not opposite they cannot meet one another sure but the there fact can't be a square circle or something exactly. can't be one and many so exactly. another way to look at it is correct me if i'm wrong but it's this idea of seeing unity and multiplicity seeing the one in the many which exactly mm -hmm. exactly and so he says that that for the Sufis is the essence of intoxication because that is the door to which you can actually enter into the divine presence because the divine presence transcends and is beyond our 
mind and the understanding of our mind. So you need a whole set of other faculties, other ways in order to approach this, what he would eventually call hayra or perplexity. Mm. Now, the question is, is it was like, it was very beautiful to read this. But the real issue for me that attracted me to Ibn Arabi when I read that, and to which until this day I believe he is the answer to not only a crisis in the Muslim community in the West, a crisis in the Muslim community worldwide, and a crisis in humanity at large, is because this story, his observation, his feeling, his connection with the tree was beyond what we would call religious term. Mm -hmm. You know, so he's connecting, he's a humanist at this point. Mm -hmm. He's witnessing God in nature. So it's like when I read that, I can imagine the Native American mm -hmm. kind of falling in love with Ibn Arabi. I can imagine the secular humanist falling in love with Ibn Arabi. And the amazing thing is, is he never, he didn't even use a single uh, term that we would call religious or Islamic. Sure. Nothing from fiqh, nothing from aqidah. It is just bringing, it, it is not dumbing down um, Islamic spirituality. It's actually revealing the human being as being truly sacred. So it's kind of lifting the human being to their true station. That in your essence, in your instinct, you're able to witness this amazing perplexity that is the creation. And when you do that, you're actually experiencing something that the saints talk about, which is intoxication. Right. So that was this. This, I think, sums up kind of my connection with this with this amazing saint who who for not. And, and it's obvious because nowadays Ibn Arabi is just known so far and wide in the West, and there is entire society devoted to him called the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society, who basically they even do like retreats mm -hmm. where they invite people. They're not Muslim, but they're studying his writings, they're doing his litanies, and they're reflecting and they're trying to receive openings through his experience. And so this basically, I think, sums up who who uh, who Ibn Arabi is and why why I, I became attracted to him. Yeah, that's um, very much interesting. And I think if if you look at a parallel, I've thought about this a lot. That you know, you have much of what you described about why Ibn Arabi is popular um, in the West <laughs> is, to a large extent, why Rumi is so popular in the West because absolutely. The imagery, I mean, if you read Rumi, like he is using imagery from the well of common hu human experience, right? Exactly. He's talking about nature and going to the market and having a family and, you know, just look, reflecting on the signs of nature, you know, like things that we all experience. He says, you see the foam, but you don't see the sea, right? <laughs> he says, you exactly. see, you know, you see the dust kick up in the wind, but you don't see the wind. So he's talking about these very profound metaphysical realities in the most, you could say, mundane terms. But of course, mundane terms, yes. what he's pointing out is that nothing is truly mundane. 
nothing exactly. is nothing is not sacred and that's what i hear you saying with ibn arabi and unfortunately you you know a lot of people tend to think of religion as just in general you think of a church or a mosque or a priest or you think of praying or you think of meditating or these different traditions but of again these are the forms but always yes. at the essence of each tradition is this idea that the forms are to get to the meaning, to awaken a certain state, to develop a certain consciousness, to uh, reveal a certain awareness, which should be at all moments. You know, it's not about the outward trappings of the tradition, which are valuable, but they're valuable for what they do to the human being, ideally. And and that that in its essence has to do, I think, the, the problem that you mentioned, um, of of fixating on the forms is i mean there there was a whole aspect of for example divine law like sharia mm -hmm. there was a whole aspect in sufism of studying the bottom of sharia studying the inward aspects of sharia mm -hmm. that is no longer present mm -hmm. so for example in the meccan openings the fatuhat al makkiyah ibn arabi's uh, largest work there is an entire, I think, almost like two, three hundred pages where he just talks about the inward aspects of the Sharia. And he does things like, why is it permissible to wear your shoes in prayer? Hmm. And his answer is, he says, the inward, the actual, the reality of the matter is that prayer is a journey and you cannot travel barefoot. <laughs> right? He says, why is it why why do we have the right hand over the left hand and he was actually maliki so he he would adhere to the opinion he it would seem like he should adhere to the opinion of of letting the hands at the sides during prayer but he said i i believe that you put the right hand over the left hand and he says the reason for that is because the hand of god is over their hand so what 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 is missing is not only not discussing metaphysics, not discussing the spiritual world or how the material world is spiritual in its truth, but even divine law, its reality, which is the spiritual world. And I mean, the way that the Sharia, the way that divine law connects with the material world, that's just the form. There is the reality of the Sharia that has to do with the spirit. Sure. That's not discussed. But I think the key here is also what you mentioned about you know, that somebody like Ibn Arabi or like Rumi, they, they talk in mundane terms, but they're actually spiritualizing the world. Um, a person, uh, you know, that we both um, share great admiration for, Professor Chidik, um, in his recent work, uh, uh, Divine Love, which is an amazing, amazing uh, collation of essays and translations on the Sufis from the 10th and the 11th century and how they wrote about love. And if you read that work, it'll completely transform one's understanding of how Muslims in the past uh, approached scripture, approached hadith, approached understanding the story of Sayyidina Adam in, in paradise. But one of the things that uh, Professor Chidik says in the beginning, he says, I used to think, that if there is one idea, one theme that defines Islam was knowledge. He says, but after studying the great works of the Sufis for 20 years 
and understanding better the time period they lived in, I am convinced now that Islam is best described by love. Mm -hmm. Love is what best describes the Islamic tradition. And in reality, that comes from the famous uh, like narration that the Sufis adhere to, which describes the purpose of creation. I was a hidden treasure, God mm -hmm. says, and I loved to be known. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that came is love, and then knowledge was born out of love. Yeah. And the infatuation with knowledge reveals a lot more about the times we're living in. But then the second thing that Professor Chidik says that I wanted to say is that he says, if you consider the normal person that lived 800 years ago, you know, this normal person was a farmer who lived away from the major cities like Baghdad or Damascus or, or Central Asia. And these people, the farmers were illiterate and they barely had enough money to sustain themselves. If they had any money, they would not use that money to travel to a major city like Baghdad and attend the scholarly circles because they would even have to learn how to read and write first before they go and listen to these scholars like Ghazali and, and others. Mm -hmm. Said so, so how did these people connect with God? You know, how did these people practice their religion? He's like, it was through memorizing poetry. They would memorize the poetry of Rumi the poetry of Ibn Arabi, the poetry of Attar, the poetry of Hafiz, you know, in Turkey, the poetry of Yunus Emre, mm -hmm. and the poetry of these great poets. And then by reciting this poetry while they're farming, while they're harvesting, while they're planting the seeds, while they're taking care of the animals, their mundane life instantly becomes worship. It becomes a connection with God. They're dealing with God by tending to the animals. Because this poetry, this idea of reciting poetry mixed with the correct understanding of reality, of how the universe works, you begin to perceive that you're not actually doing something that's taking you away from God. And then you have to go to the masjid, the mosque, or the church in order to recharge your battery. That mindset is very new. People in the past, they knew that there is no such thing that if I'm working or I'm tending to the animals or I'm planting flowers, that I'm doing something that has to do with this world. Nothing is away from the divine manifestation. And if you have that perception, everything is filled with love and everything is filled with beauty. So that really is the importance of Ibn Arabi is because he, he and, and Molana Rumi it's because they allowed to ignite that memory of, of how to perceive the universe and its intimacy with God. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a key thing. I mean, we don't really often think about the fact that, you know, our, what are we as human beings beyond the, our forms is we're kind of points of perception or levels of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily understand the way that what our, our, the kind of paradigm that we have taken on colors everything we see. You know, there's that saying, which, which is so true, that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Yes. And, you know, that's one of the things which I think is, mis is, is, is not really necessarily acknowledged enough in our time is that, yes, there's a lot of Muslims, there's a lot of Christians, but how many of them have taken on a, a kind of 
worldview, which is actually alien to the tradition in a sense where you might go to mosque or go to church, but you're essentially looking at a, a dead universe, right? You've taken on the kind of secular worldview in which, you know, it's just this kind of the mechanistic reductionist paradigm. Whereas, like you said, that, that farmer or that, you know, great poet or metaphysician you know, all the way through the social structure, they were looking at nature as ayat. They were looking at the entire cosmos as a, a you could say, like a matrix of the, the, the divine names. And they were looking at this all as, as a, a kind of a dance of love, a communication with the human being to awaken something deep within us that we've always known, but perhaps we've lost touch with. You know what I mean? And and it's like we think in the West that oh now we're we're so advanced we don't have a creation story that the no. old people did but no we have our creation stories too and those color profoundly right if you believe that the the enti- entire existence um, came from like you say a, a an absolute infinite source of mercy which loved to be known. Mm-hmm. And, and this love and knowledge, this interplay of that. So then this is what this whole thing is. That's going to deeply color every aspect of your life. That this whole thing is about love and knowledge and coming to experience and these type of things. Whereas if you yes. believe, if your creation story is that the whole universe came from uh, the head of a pin in, in size to the, the, the almost, you know... <laughs> seemingly infinite vastness in in this in the split instant but that there was no intention no purpose it's just a complete accident and yes um then in deep time accidentally and randomly certain beings uh came from single-celled organisms to the vast multiplicity of flora and fauna that we see on the earth and then certain of these beings develop consciousness and could reflect on the fact that the universe came from almost nothing in a single instant but it doesn't mean anything it's just an accident whether we exist or not it doesn't matter like if that is your paradigm it's going to completely color how you exist how you relate to others how you relate to yourself and we or decolor yes for sure or decolor yes and so i think these things are really important like the 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 paradigm that we take um, colors or decolors everything. But one thing that is interesting about Ibn Arabi, um, when I read him, is that, and I think this is something that interests you about him, is that he is yes. he's really interested in, in the imaginal realm. And he yes. talks about that the, 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 the aql, the intellect, the rational mind, it has its place and it's, it's important, but fundamentally of, of utmost importance in the human being is the faculty which he talks about as the imaginal faculty. And, and that, I'd like to hear you talk about that and, 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 and maybe explain that a bit because we tend to think about the imagination. I mean, we think about creativity and art as powerful and important and the great poets and the great, right, Shakespeare yes. and, and Tolstoy and these type of people and the great musicians and things and painters and, and, and sculptors mm-hmm. as important. But mm-hmm. we also, I feel like, tend to 
also degrade the imagination because we yes. say, oh, that's just your imagination. and You know what yes, I mean? It's yes. like, it's not yes. real. It's not cold, hard facts and stuff like that. So talk about what Ibn Arabi's understanding of the imagination and the imaginal realm and its importance. Absolutely. So that's that's really to the heart of the matter, right? That that this the 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 exist the belief in uh, an imaginal realm, like an actual place in the reality of our existence, that is called the imaginal realm, where imagination comes from, separates how the ancients understood reality from our understanding. Our understanding is thoroughly dualistic, um, and by that I mean either specifically religious, like the religious discourse, the religious conversation today, uh, the theology that is taught is that God is very distant from the world. Um, we have a we kind of pay lip service to the fact that everything is under divine control and divine will, but God doesn't really get involved in the world. And even if we don't say that outright, our actions like we were talking, like, you know, the farming, the working, the dealing with people is considered to be taking us away from God. It's part of dunya and then part of this lowly life. And then, you know, in order to really connect with God, you have to go to the mosque, you have to go to the church, you have to, you have to recharge your battery. Um, and... The people in the past, uh, one of the great works about Ibn Arabi is called Alone with the Alone, uh, Creative Imagination in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi by a French philosopher named Henri Corbin. And Henri Corbin, this is his major point. He says, in the past, people believed that there was a realm in the in existence where spirits and bodies can meet where the spiritual world can interact with the material world. We don't have that anymore. People don't believe in that anymore. Um, what we have now is we have the physical world, and I'm talking about now people who are claimed to be religious or espouse a religion, a faith and a belief. They believe that there is this material world and then there is the spiritual world. But how the spiritual world interacts with the material world, we don't have an answer for that anymore. And so Ibn Arabi says that anybody who believes in dualism, meaning in saying that the universe is established on the spiritual world and the material world only, they don't understand how reality works. He says reality is always based on triplicity, meaning you have two opposites and then a babzakh in between them. And that, is, that comes from the Qur'an. So the Qur'an says, God says, He merged the two seas. They do not meet. They do not transgress one another. Um, sorry, He merged the two seas. They meet. And between them is a, a barzakh or isthmus in Arabic and English. An isthmus, a divider, a liminal space, an interstice. Threshold. where a threshold where they don't transgress so that they don't they 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 don't transgress one another so these two oceans these two bodies of water they're not just the fresh and the salty water of the earthly seas and oceans it's also the salty water is actually the body the human body and the fresh water is the pure spirit 
and there is a bavzakh in between them. There is this threshold, and that threshold is what's known as alam al-khayal, the imaginal realm that Ibn Arabi talks about. Before I talk about the details of this, it's really important to note that for Ibn Arabi, as all the ancients believed, what exists in the larger universe exists inside the human being. So in the universe, we have the spiritual realm, the material realm, and then the imaginal realm in between them. And the human being has the body, which represents the material realm, has the spirit, which represents the spiritual realm, and then the soul, the nafs, or we can call this, say, the ego, represents the barzakh in between them. Now, the ramifications of this is huge. First of all, if we look at the large universe, Ibn Arabi describes this alam al-khayal, the imaginal realm. He says, it's a world where bodies become spiritualized and spirits become corporalized or embodied. They, they, they like, it's like a body that becomes subtle, that dresses itself in a spirit so that it can break the bounds of time and space, essentially. And spirits get dressed in a body that puts a certain type of limitation on it, like a cast, like a body cast, but for the spirit, in order so that it can interact. Why do we need this? Because spirits in their nature are absolutely subtle. They have no form. There is no dimension to spirits. It's, it's just complete light. No form, no dimensionality. And bodies are very dense. They are restricted by time and space. So there has to be a middle ground where the body meets the spirit. And that's what takes place in this imaginal realm. For the human being, what this means is, is that the body, Ibn Arabi says, can get dragged to the world of spirits. It can ascend. And when the body, through the, through the power of the soul, through undertaking the journey towards God, towards the divine presence, the soul is climbing towards the spirit. But while it is doing that, it is grabbing the body along with it. And when that happens, the body no longer becomes like other bodies of this world. It actually becomes like a spirit which means it gets released from the boundaries of time and space. It, 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 it can break the boundaries of time. It can travel in light speed, um, as the stories of saints have abundance, abundance proof of that. And if the, if the soul is dragged down to the world of the bodies, then it loses complete touch with its spiritual origin. And it becomes no different than the animal self, say, or like a, a mineral, a rock. There is no intellection, there is no reflection, there is no contemplation. And this is kind of what distinguishes the human being um, in the sense of having this, this comprehensiveness to reach all the way from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. But in order for all of that to make sense, you have to have this imaginal realm in the back of your heart, not really in the back of your mind. It's in the back of the heart. Like to be aware of the existence of a realm where the bodies and the spirits do interact, 
that the spirits is not just superstition, is not just a figment of a fantasy. It is part of everyday being. It, it is what, and it's actually a higher level of reality than our material bodies, right? Because the body, the material body is rooted in the spirit, not, other, not the other way around. And so because of that, because the imaginal realm is a little bit higher than the material realm, it is in between the material and the spiritual, the imagination, which include our dreams, include our creative inspiration, which I think this is where we're going, where, where we're getting to. This is the most important thing. Creative inspiration. This is actually a higher level of reality than everything we do with our bodies. Precisely because it's closer to the spirit. And precisely because it's closer to our root. Right? So, so... This is this is like a gist of, of the of, of the imaginal realm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. At the end, that that brings up for me this idea that, um, without like reducing the the vast kind of like you know diversity of, of the various uh, traditions mm -hmm. in human history, it's clear that basically all the world uh, wisdom traditions teach that consciousness is primary or spirit mm -hmm. or awareness and that is the ultimate you know ultimate infinite awareness consciousness presence is the divine reality and then yes everything else kind of like descends from that you could say and so the, yes the world of form and bodies is kind of like the last it's you know it's it's the the most outward of that reality and so yes you know of course the the modern materialist paradigm is is based on that that the material world is actually primary and it's really all there is and so mm -hmm. consciousness awareness imagination these are these must um emerge from some physical thing as opposed to the the, the physical must emerge from the the spirit the spirit from the spiritual yes um but i think these ideas, because they can be foreign to a lot of us, I think the analogy um, of dreaming is really important. And I know Ibn Arabi talks a lot about dreaming mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I even read in one of the passages that he said the only reason that sleep is in the world for human beings is so that people who haven't kind of like had this veil removed to the imaginal realm as far as like haven't had openings in which they kind of are, are firmly aware of it in a waking state, then yes. they will have experience of it in the, that sleeping state. And then he talks about this idea that, you know, when you we dream, we eat and drink and have experiences and there's, oh, my uncle was there and my, you know, next door neighbor that I grew up with and all these type of people. But in reality we know because we've all dreamt and then we've all awakened that mm -hmm. all of those things that you saw all the individuals and, and, the, and, the, and the items and the ideas and the conversations they were all you they yes. were all you like it, it wasn't yes. that there was someone else in, there, no it was you we, we woke up and realized that was part of your in, what whether you want to call it imagination consciousness whatever that was that was you, and so it, you, you, your thoughts, your consciousness, your awareness takes various forms, 
And so yes. even Arabi, you know, says something which is, is really beautiful and really uh, amazing, really. Is he, is he, he seems to say that all of existence is essentially the, the dream or the imagination of, of the divine. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly, absolutely. That's, that's, and you know, this is, this is, we can begin to tie in creative inspiration by saying this is straight align, you know, aligned straight from Shakespeare, who said, we are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. You know, that the idea that, yes, when you see a dream, what we now consider to be dreams, meaning that we are asleep and we see something and we see all those people, we interact with all those people. And then when we do see them, we wake up and we realize that we actually, it was a figment, like we, it was us, it was our consciousness. And when Ibn Arabi says that now in a waking state, you think that you're no longer sleeping. But in reality, it's the divine imagination um, projecting itself upon a series of mirrors. But really what he's really saying is that everyone you interact with while in an awakened state, they are also figments of your imagination. And what do I mean by that? What he means by that is that, and you mentioned this before, we don't know things, we don't know the world, we don't know people as they are, we know them as we are. So Ibn Arabi relies upon uh, a hadith Qudsi, a holy narration where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am as my servant thinks of me. And that's not just a sent, Ibn Arabi says, it's not just sentimentals, right? It's actually, it, it is, it is, it is like a, like a, there is an agency, there is power to the imagination. If you think, if you believe, if you imagine mercy, that is how you will, that is what you will receive. Sure. And so the universe is like a mirror to us. It reflects back to us who we are. And the issue becomes if the divine is reflecting upon himself in the universe, how can evil exist? How can evil exist if it's just a reflection of the divine? And that is when we begin talking about broken mirrors hmm. and unclean mirrors. Because in reality, the, the, the fault in the reflection never goes back to the one who's reflecting. Sure. But it goes, it, it, the fault goes upon the mirror that's supposed to do the reflection. Sure. And, you know, the secret here is also the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu who talked about people seeing him in the dream. And he says, whoever sees me, they have really truly seen me. For, you know, shaitan, iblis, Satan cannot, um, you know, appear in my form. Well, what does that mean now? That it's it has to do with the verse of the Quran, know that within you, is the messenger of God. Not the normal literal translation of know that the messenger of God is amongst you. It says fikum, which means know that the messenger of God is within you. Mm -hmm. He is inside of you. 
because that's it's this ongoing project of the divine reflecting upon himself and i've always you know like to be just a little bit uh controversial with a with a with a with a, a poetic license and say that ibn arabi since he said that the universe is kind of divine imagination it's really a divine dream and with a poetic license we can say if god wakes up it's all over <laughs> and you know but it's it's what what that means is that is that this ongoing process of creation is really like a divine painting or a divine play all the beautiful colors of the universe any beautiful imagery that we see is the divine painting and any beautiful sound that we hear any beautiful image that we create or that exists in nature any beautiful sound that we hear or that we make of music is a divine symphony the divine composing and any beautiful writing that we come across um, of prose or poetry is divine writing divine speech and essentially i mean this is this is really where i am at right now uh considering this 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 you know god as 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 the absolute artist hmm. as the the artist the source of artistry the source of art and those of his creation that represent him best are those who are artists if they are prophets they are saints uh, they are artists who whose inspiration has reached the level of revelation if they are saints they are artists of souls and if they are we call them artists just artists you know including shakespeare gibran khalil gibran now we're talking about non-religious people who we don't consider to be religious artists. Mm -hmm. These 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 are types of saints, and the reason is um, it has to do with this imaginal realm, and this is something that Henri Corbin talks about in Alone with the Alone, and it's also uh, uh, specifically emphasized by Harold Bloom, who talks about it in the preface, that what Ibn Arabi is doing with the imaginal realm. It's not, he's not just delineating or marking out a religious idea. He's actually saying that creative inspiration for art, no matter, even if the artist is an atheist, creative inspiration comes from the same place as divine revelation. The only thing that distinguishes it from divine revelation is the level of clarity. Mm. Mm. And this is absolutely crucial because this means that art, the artistic process, the energy that comes to an artist, to an artist's soul and being and heart through inspiration is in its original form, divine revelation. Now what the artist does that through their mirror, how they channel that energy, what they do with it, that's a whole different issue. Sure. That's how we get good art and low art. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, mashallah, there's so much that um, that, that brings up for me. Uh, um, and I mean, 
to, w when you started off talking about dreams, I mean, I've always thought about, there's like some, a few sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon mm -hmm. him, about dreams, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people are sleeping and when they die, they wake up. Exactly. Right? And then he also said, peace be upon him, die before you die. In die other words, wake up before you wake up. Like, wake up before it's all over. And, you know, then there's the, the beautiful... Um, Hadith of Jibril, where he defines Ihsan as to worship God as if you see him and if you don't see him to know that he sees you. So if we again take the poetic license exactly. to re-articulate that vis-a-vis -vis the dreaming and awakening and death, uh, that we could say, live this dream as if you are awake. And if you are not awake, know the awake is watching you dream. Allahu Akbar, that's it. That, that's 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 exactly that's straight to the point and you and know if you think about art you know definitely as someone you know obviously i'm a musician and poet so like the greatest moments of my life literally um have been as far as my feeling of expansiveness of profundity of stepping outside of time of mm -hmm. tapping into like like dissolving or expanding slash dissolving the boundaries of self. You know, mm -hmm. those f experiences which now in kind of modern secular terms, people are calling like flow or being in the zone or whatever, whatever you want yes. to call it. I mean, anything you call it, it trivializes it. But, though, but I think we've all experienced it. I mean, I, I experienced it first when I, you know, I think as a child, we experience it all the time. You know, we're kind of always in that state. But then, you know, as I, when I was a teenager playing basketball, I would sometimes, like we would know, you would get in this state where you knew where your teammate was going to be before he was there. You know, who, who, your, mm -hmm. your opponent, where he was going to throw the ball before it was there. You know, and, and, you know, people talk about being in the zone where you literally can't miss. It's like the hoop is like expands. And then the second way I experienced it as I got a little bit older was in music and like freestyling and like this idea of we are just going to improvise in the moment creativity. I'm, I'm going to speak to a beat and I'm going to make it rhyme and make sense. And now, you know, we talk about like in that improv moment or you think about jazz music, right, where there's this improv which freestyling comes out of. And each musician in the group knows the capability of the other musicians in the group because you've played with them many times. That they're, they're your bandmates, right? But every once in a while, one of them would break through. And he would be riding a wave which is beyond his normal capacity as far as the notes he's hitting, the rhythm, the perfection of his playing, the inspiration. that He was playing from beyond his kind of like lowercase i, and everyone would feel it and it would affect everyone. And then he would go on a solo and it would bring everyone up. And everyone was conscious and aware that he would ride it for a while and then he would maybe fall off. Like, you know, he's riding a wave. Think of a surfer. And then all of a sudden he, he loses it. But then the next person off of that inspiration would then jump in and, tr and try to ride that wave because he noticed that. You know what I mean? So there's, we can experience those things. And I think yes. what you're saying is the arts are... You know, when I'm saying like the most profound experiences of my life, some of them, they've either been in two things. They've either been in, 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 you know, what we would consider more like spiritual 
like whether it's prayer or fasting or dhikr, right? Or, you know, right. contemplation or when I'm writing, when I'm writing. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. for me, I don't separate those two things. Like those no. are all, no. you know what I mean? Like, and I think I, I once asked a friend of mine uh, who is an imam, but he, he uh, used to be a jazz musician. And I, mm-hmm. I asked him, I said, why do you think that so many people from a musical background end up taking the spiritual path of la ilaha illallah, considering that there's a vast majority, you know, there's a lot of people on the, on the path that claim that music is, is, is a low thing or is an unacceptable thing, et cetera. Yes. And he said, he said, well, think about it. These are people that devote their life to the unseen. Subhanallah. And, you know, yes. there's a type of though that artists have there's a type of experiential knowledge like you experience right especially with music like i'll just speak on that because that's what the one i have the most experience with is like you're dealing with an intangible entity you're dealing with an unseen thing that can evoke and create profound sadness profound joy it can bring one back to to your childhood experience it can yes. it can heal one's heart. It can burst one heart one's heart open, right? And look, think about the industry of music, multi billion dollar industry, right? It, yes. it it pervades our life. We have it in our headphones. It's in the supermarket, right? It's there's award ceremonies. You can't have a gathering in in, in the evening anywhere on earth where there's not music coming through the, the speakers on some level. And yet, all of this industry, all of the the CDs and, and plastic cases and the MP3s and all the physical things and the performances and the festivals and everything, it is all for something that is unseen. It is all so for fun. something that no one has ever touched, no one has ever seen, no one has ever felt with the physical, tangible body. But so yet it's this, it's this entire massive thing that's at the center of hu- human civilization. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah... So, I mean, I could go on, but I, I'd love to hear more of what you have to say about this. You, you know, you've you've hit in, you've hit on so many points. Two of them that I just wanna, I just wanna remark. You mentioned that that idea of transcending time, right? Of trans, like what they call being in the zone, the aha moment, transcendence, um, of of nothing can go wrong. You know, it's amazing. Essentially, that is the description of what a wali of what a saint is mm-hmm. at because all times. According, right. at all times so the famous description of a saint according to the holy narration is god says i become the eye with which he sees i i become the hand with which he strikes is what the hadith says but really we can say the hand with which he writes mm-hmm. i become the 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 foot with which he walks what that means is that the artist is given a glimpse into the order and the harmony of things. If we were to look at it from like a Buddhist, like Confucianist perspective, they're looking at the harmony of things, the order of things. They cannot go wrong because they, the, when they say they're in, in the zone, they're, they're like riding, they're like a, like a completely submissive body in the ocean of reality. Mm. The ocean is carrying them. 
and they're just witnessing and they're narrating they're witnessing and they're writing they're listening and they're singing and that's exactly what wilaya is and it's not surprising that t.s Eliot, um in his uh uh dry salvages poem he describes he says the the intersection the point of the intersection of the timeless with time that is an occupation for the saint mm -hmm. because the saint is like an like is like an open portal mm -hmm. they 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 are the imaginal realm they are imagination mm -hmm. you're looking at a body of a saint but in reality their bodies are just like gates or doors that go into the spiritual world their bodies are like those bodies that have been pulled all the way to the level of the spirit and so they are divine artwork mm -hmm. and when you look at them you're looking at an artist who is not only producing art but they are so in tune with their artistry that they have become art mm -hmm. you look at them and you know you're looking at a person who is himself like his own artwork he's his own or her own uh masterpiece uh that's that's that that's really key in terms of connecting artistry to wilaya the second thing relating uh to music um and uh, you know i dare say you know this is like where i am finding my my kind of niche in terms of art um and, and learning in learning music but the amazing thing about music is um hazard anayat khan he regards music as the highest form of art precisely because of what you said it is completely formless it has no form it is the primordial sound so creation began with god speaking and when god spoke humanity didn't see any form they just heard the voice they heard the the sound and when they heard they perished because the sound was so beautiful the voice of god the essence of all beauty you can think about all the major modes of western music the the phrygian the lydian the major the minor and all keys combined together into a beautiful harmony all the eastern maqam the maqamats that i'm studying right now of bayati and sabba and hijaz and rust and nihawand and ajam and all of these thousands of them combined together into a beautiful harmony and lumped together into just one sound one breath that was so powerful so perfect in its beauty so perfect in its majesty that after god created creation and he spoke to them asking them am i not your lord not only did they faint they actually perished from existence altogether that he created them once again just so that they reply and this is why one of our teachers, Habib Umar, um, he said, when human beings hear a beautiful sound, the reason it affects them is because it ignites a memory. They remember when God spoke to them. Mm -hmm. And so music was actually the first, or when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when God loved to be known, and he undertook this divine art project of creating creation, the first art form he utilized was music by speaking and then came the visual creation 
And Ibn Arabi will even tell us, you know, in the levels of existence before the appearance of the physical universe and before God even spoke to creation, there was the inner dialogue of God with himself, the divine essence speaking with the names and attributes. And that was inner music. That was like inner reflection. And then came the outer sound. Then came the visual. And then the end of this creation in paradise, where human beings in paradise will be able to gaze upon God and receive the beatific vision that uh, Dante talks about of Beatrice, but really it's the beatific vision of God, that in its essence is visual art. So creation began with auditory music and will end with a visual art. So this, this creation began with music, began with art, and ends with painting, ends with visual uh, art, and so it ends with art as well. And so we're just in the middle of art. And this is exactly why art is so important. For me today, the time period that we're living in, after we have discussed the, 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 the catastrophe, the existential catastrophe that human beings are facing now, especially religious people and especially Muslims in our case, because that's the religion we belong to, is the artists are, I perceive them as being really the last hope. Because we are seeing now, it's like a like a like a, 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 a something is precipitating even in religious discourse is so far away from art that is so far away from aesthetics. So you like you talked about how imagination is considered is degraded as being just fantasy, not really as serious as 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 uh, dear God. I mean. You know, if we just look at vocations, most most people in our religious community, the Muslims in America, they all become doctors and engineers. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We rarely see people become artists and humanists. It's because it's considered to be not really a serious thing. But much, but re in reality, that's because the religious foundation that is supposed to give us and grant us the correct understanding of how the universe works, that it began with love, it began with art, it began with music, it will end with love, it will end with art, and it will end with, with uh, a type of visual art. Um, that religious discourse, that religious foundation, is very much a product of secularism. Sure. It is a product of the Enlightenment. It is a product of... God is in your private life, God is in the mosque, God is in the church, God is not in the world. You will not perceive God in, in at the museum, at the art museum, when in reality... And, and also, and, we're gonna re and we, we relate to God like, uh, like a drill sergeant. You know what I mean? God yes. is, the, the, the relation to, to God is, is, is rule-based in the same, just like, you know, if you study... You know, engineering, you just have to, mem you know, you memorize a series of how things work. You know what I mean? Like, this is how things work. You memorize that. It's like, and so you memorize what God wants and you do that. Like, that's the primary mode of relationship, you know, that a lot of people have to, to quote unquote, religion. And that's, that's like, that's like someone who keeps studying the chemical composition of honey, but never tastes it once in his life. 
And on top of that, he gets upset and he degrades people who actually taste honey. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what we're seeing. And for that reason, art, I see it as really kind of the last, they're like, you know, so in a time period when human being, there's a lot of human suffering, there's a lot of wars, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of injustice, not just the apparent things that we see, but injustice in normal human dealings. Um, this idea of being a drill sergeant, of always looking at the other in terms of a set, how, so a human being now to us is someone who either applies the rules really well or doesn't apply them really well, but not really a set, you know, like an emotions, a perplexing manifestation of divine attributes, all of that. And when the saints of God are hidden and they hide themselves for wisdom, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to provide balance so that there is an outlet of mercy for people, for humanity, I believe those are the artists. I believe those are the painters. Because they're they're like they're like vortexes. They're like they're like a like a portal into the spiritual world. And yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and and they channel, they take the suffering of the world and they translate it into something that is beautiful and you have to do that. So for example, you know, in the United States, you mentioned music. Um, like for me, jazz music will always be the most powerful form of activism. Mm. You know, if you think about the ney in, 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 in the motif of the ney, so Maulana Rumi, his most famous poem probably is he talks about uh, in the Methnavi, he talks about the name. He says, look at the name, how it longs to return to the reed bed. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. There is this, this, this stick of wood. It's ripped out from its homeland. Mm -hmm. That's basically what the major trends of human suffering have been over the past hundred years, mm. 200 years. Human beings that have been a race or a group of people in ethnicity that has been ripped out of its homeland. Mm -hmm. And that is suffering. Mm -hmm. So the Ney suffers. But then look at what happens to the Ney. It gets drilled and emptied from the inside. Mm -hmm. And it gets it gets holes are made in it. And 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 in Sufi in Sufi like in Sufi understanding, the idea of emptying the wood from the inside is like emptying the nafs. It's like burning the ego away. And that's after the suffering takes place. That's after getting ripped out from the reed bed. You get emptied from the inside, and then you get seven holes drilled into you, and they're supposed to be points of kesh. They're supposed to be points of unveiling into the outside world. And then after that, you get burnt and you get straightened out, and then the divine breath comes in, and there is music. But the most amazing thing about the music that comes from the Ney is that everyone who listens to it is actually participating in the lamentation. Mm. They're actually participating in the longing that the Ney has for going back to the reed bed. And they actually become advocates for that. And so jazz music is actually a type of the story of the Ney for the African-American people in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
because it is expressing and and it will it will because it pierces through this is the thing about music and art it pierces through social constructs it pierces through political ideologies it doesn't care about political ideologies it'll crash them down it'll destroy them and go straight for the heart it'll go for the jugular sure because it is it is speaking to the human spirit and so if that happens precisely because it's formless precisely because it doesn't rely upon language it relies upon the language of the heart which is from the world of spirits and that's why you know one of the poetries of, of rumi is translated as music is the language of god mm-hmm. this is the language that god speaks in and hazard anayat khans he says look all the early revelations they were music the Hindu revelation, the early revelations, they were music. The Psalms of David, they were music. It was, it was, it was, it was a type of of, of singing and chanting. Mm-hmm. There was no, and if you take a primordial sound that you're chanting and you just break it up into small breaths, and you change the way where you the 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 makhraj, like the the pronunciation place in your body, you get words. Mm-hmm. So music is already at the root of language, but it's the secret sound. It's that original sound, what the Sufis call the Saut Sarmad, the like the basically the sound of silence. Mm. You know how like we have in music this idea of a drone, like something that's yep. in the background. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the ongoing drone, mm-hmm. but it's like the spirit of all the music. And so, and so you know, like like for for especially for if I were to say about Muslims in America or. Or our existence as like of, of 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 the Muslim faith, if this issue of uh, whether music is allowed or forbidden, I am entire I am inclined to say that without a serious devotion to art and music, there is no hope for Muslims in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I agree, and I mean, you know, one of the things that's that's interesting is that. Um, I mean, on one hand, you think about all the great awliya and even the ulama, you know, in our tradition, all the great, you know, sages and the great scholars. It's hard to find one that didn't have a diwan. It's hard to find mm-hmm. one who didn't have a mm-hmm. compilation of poetry. And mm-hmm. I thought about that, and I think there's something that happens when you start to awaken. Or you start to delve deeper or, or come more in contact with that imaginal realm is that that's that's the mode that you start to see things through and the only way that it will essentially satisfy you is essentially you're seeing things as you're seeing the symbolic value in things you're connecting dots right you're seeing a world in a grain of sand and eternity in an hour you know what I mean to hold infinity in the palm of your hand you know and heaven in a wildflower. You're seeing the, I think that's, that's really the important thing is like, you're seeing not just things as like, like an engineer sees things as this is this, this is this, this is and this, but you're seeing that everything in the outward world, it has meaning. And you're starting to connect. And you're seeing, you're seeing that if you see, uh, you know, in the marketplace, a mother, like a child who, you know, loses its mother in the marketplace and is frightened and is afraid and is sad, right? And then it looks around and then you see the mother's face and she's like concerned. Where, and then you see them like reunited. Like you see in that moment, 
not just, oh, that's something that just happened, but you say, man, this is the story of existence with separation <laughs> and union and, and feeling alone and then be, being becoming one again, multiplicity, right? Is to start peeling back the veil between this, this illusion that everything is just surface and everything is separate. And you're seeing that yes. everything is interconnected and everything is meaning propped up in form. That's one thing. And then the second thing that I would say, and I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, is that if you live in a traditional society, mm -hmm. um, and I think you're getting at this, is that the highest art is really the art of the self, the art of the soul, is, is attaining a, a, a Mohammedan heart, a transformed being. That is art. You, you know, you're, and, and it's interesting that you know, the, the Sufis will talk about the heart being a mirror or even like, you know, and then there's the idea of like the mirror that you polish, right? So that it can perfectly reflect the, the light or even reflect the painting, reflect the artist, the artistry. You know what I mean? Yes. But yes, if you think about in traditional terms, right, there was this reverence for the uliya, the saints, the sages. In each tradition, there's this idea of the, the spiritual master, the awakened the ones, master, right? Yes. And so you would know where that individual was. You know, like you said, if you were a farmer or a shopkeeper or whatever, that's fine. Maybe you weren't completely dedicated to the spiritual path and practice, mm -hmm. but you knew where to go if you wanted to, to seek those people out, whether they were in the village or whether they were on the mountaintop or in the cave or in the, or in the desert or wh whatever it was, or the kind of wandering, you know, dervish or what have you. Like you knew and you had been in the presence of people who in their presence you felt like that door open to a realm beyond this physical world. And those were the Absolutely. people that were revered. Those were the, the celebrities of society, right? Those were literally yes. the pre-modern celebrities. And so now in the modern world, most people haven't come in contact with those type of people. And so mm -hmm. most people, because, you know, in our modern world, seeing is believing, mm -hmm. is they either don't believe that those people exist or they say, well, maybe once upon a time, but they're not, mm -hmm. they're not any anymore, right? Yes. And so, but the people that modern people go to who fulfill that function in a certain sense, meaning yes. those people who bring forth, a, who, you know, beauty from the unseen, those people yes. who have a certain power to uh, transmit something transcendent and something beyond the forms. Those people who have an, an unknown and inexplicable creative genius and power are the artists. Absolutely. And so the artists become the olia for, for the, most, the majority of people. And that Absolutely. explains the devotion to them the want to, to be like them, their poster on the wall, wear their t-shirts, wear their shoes, whatever fashion they have. And this, this, this reverence, this screaming, right? The image of the young girls, uh, you know, passing out at a Beatles concert. You know what I mean? Because it's yes, like, absolutely. And, and you see that in traditional societies, literally passing out in the presence of the Oliya, because you can't take the, the profound 
intensity embodied in this being, right? This, the creative power of this individual. And so exactly what you say is like to forego and to forfeit over this, this realm to people who, like you say, maybe their mirror is, is, is somewhat corroded or maybe they're not perfectly you know, reflecting the light. And of course, none of us can. And that's one of the other aspects is that for true artists, you always see the fault in your art. You always see the limitation of yourself. Yes. And everyone yes. else says that's so amazing for a great artist. But a great artist, they say, that's not for me. All I see is my own faults, right? Right. And, Subhanallah, very true. And, and it's like, and, and, you know, just in closing, like, um, before, I, you know, you, you go on, is like, I, I had this conversation with my dear friend, Brother Ali, who is an amazingly mm-hmm. inspired artist. Mm-hmm. And he said a few months back, and this is before, you know, Kanye West kind of had essentially like a mental breakdown on tour. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I went to the Kanye West show when he came to Minneapolis. And he goes, mm-hmm. it was so intense because it was so, on the one hand, between creative genius but on the other hand extreme narcissism it was like mm-hmm. it was like straddling the line so intensely that at one moment i'd be like this is so beautiful and in another moment i would feel like this is disgusting and he said wow. and what it was like it, it just, he described it as like the entire like floor where the stage would be was just speakers and so the stage was actually hanging from the ceiling it was suspended above and wow. for two hours, the speakers just reverberated and it would like build up and Kanye hadn't come out yet. And you would think he's coming out. And so everyone would start, it was building this momentum and this awe and this waiting. And is it coming in this moment, the, the final moment when he actually arrives? And for two hours, it would oscillate like that. And then finally he came out and he was suspended from the stage hanging above the crowd, just out of their reach so they could reach, but they couldn't quite grab it. And he was literally hanging on a stage when the stage moved. It floated all over the stadium. And the stage would actually would turn, would, would come sideways. Like, so he was hanging off, but he was attached to it by, by chains so he wouldn't fall off. So he was like hanging at an angle. And everyone's reaching for him and he's just beyond their reach. You know what I mean? And he didn't even acknowledge their presence. He would just perform. There was no like, hey, how's everybody doing? It's great to be here. It was nothing. It was just there's no one here but him. Mm. And he said on some level it was like really like creative and really, but it was so also like nefsi. And, you know, in that moment when he said that, I, I, I felt, you know, a, a line of Rumi came to me where Rumi mm. says this amazing thing where he says, you know, He's comparing Pharaoh and Halaj. Mm-hmm. He says, the Pharaoh, he says, I am your Lord. And Halaj says, Ana al-haq. I, am the, I am the ultimate reality. I am the yes. real. And he goes, outwardly, they're saying the same thing in a certain they're sense. Saying the same thing. He said, but inwardly, they couldn't be more different. Because... Yes. Because Pharaoh is saying it from his individual eye, his, his, his nafs, his ego. But 
But Al-Halaj is saying it from his absence of self. That it is this, the div- divine voice speaking through him. Because he is literally fana, passed beyond the boundary of his self. Yes. And so, you know, art is like that too. Is it like the true beauty and profundity, it comes from beyond yourself. And the true artist sees that and knows that. I mean, think about Rumi. He'll have like the most beautiful poem ever, literally like crushingly beautiful and profound mm-hmm. and deep and just the imagery that he's drawing on it. And then he'll end it. How many of his poems he ends? He says, but now I must remain silent because I'm ashamed of my words. Right? Or Mm -hmm. he says, you know, I've described love in all these ways. But when I got to love, I'm always ashamed of my exposition. Mm -hmm. Like When you get there, it's like, oh, it's always so far from what it actually is. But there's something calling you to still describe it. And it's like, like you said, anytime you describe honey, no matter what you say about honey, it will never give someone the taste of honey, ever, Exactly. if they haven't tasted it. But for those that have tasted honey, if you describe it well, it will recall that. You see what I'm saying? And so, exactly. and then you think about artists that are, so many artists and musicians are very troubled people and meet really troubled ends. Yes. And a lot of it, I think, is because the weight of thinking it is from them. Both the beauty of that, like, oh, wow, look at me, I did this. And then also the crushing self-doubt and like, but am I a fraud? Because I don't know how this came to me. You know what I mean? Like, so like, but, but you're free from that when you realize like any beauty is from the divine presence and it's a gift. And I, you know, it's, it's a liberation in a sense because you're not, it doesn't have to be all on your shoulders, you know? That's 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 so so beautiful. You know, like the, the the what you mentioned about the 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 tragedies of artists. Every you see because you, as you said, you're you you perceive like you're carrying something, and in reality, that's because art is an energy. I mean, creative inspiration, revelation. You know, God says if we. If this Quran were to come down upon a mountain, you would see the mountain trembling. And this revelation, this type of revelation, creative inspiration, if it were to descend upon a mountain, some mountains would not be able to handle it. And so the human soul receives this constant inspiration. And so because of that, the art, the creative inspiration for art is actually an energy. It's like the force, mm. Star Wars. Yeah. And what happens when the force, when people are exposed to the force, every tragedy becomes an Anakin, mm. right? Because there is this weight of, 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 the, uh, of the power that resides within and then it's pointed out to you. And then you're you're regarded as a as a as like um, the one who is destined to bring balance to the force, mm. but then there is the narcissism of I am the one who's going to stop all of this. I am the one who's going to do this. I am the one who's going to do that. When in reality, the way of the Jedi is to just realize that the force is there with you or without you, and it is moving. And you are fortunate enough, you are honored enough, you are blessed enough 
to be exposed to it. And so oftentimes we use the example of the cup. We say the cup cannot be filled when it's full. It has to be emptied before it's filled with something new. But in reality, we need to think about a new analogy, which is the analogy of the nay. Mm -hmm. The nay doesn't even have a bottom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't contain. It just is just is just lets things pass through. The breath just passes through. And that's what the really growing art is. That's that's what Halaj was. Halaj was like a nay. He was completely empty. So that the divine breath, when it came through him, it wasn't him speaking. Whereas for Aun, it's it's you know it's this ego that has gotten to the stage where it 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 becomes so um, so filled so so filled with what it has that it thinks there is nothing else outside, and in relation to that, be, precisely because. Art is energy, and creative inspiration is is energy. One thing that I've always believed in is that places in the world where there is a lot of um, heaviness, not necessarily in terms of disasters or suffering, but even in terms of, um, for example, places where there is a particular type of societal problem that exists, that people do a particular type of action, that causes a lot of problem. I've always believed is because of a particular energy that resides in that place. That if you are not equipped enough spiritually to handle that, it can destroy you. Mm. Um, because um, the like, we always think of divine energy, the energy that comes from God, as being good, as being good, and it is good. But that doesn't need necessarily mean that the container that's going to receive it is ready. Right. And I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty, when he revealed himself to Sayyidina Musa, the mountain perished and Sayyidina Musa fell um, unconscious. So what makes human beings think that they can withstand um, a glimpse of, the, of, the, of, of, of a, divine, uh, a divine ray that is coming to you? And so... Um, when we have, and we have a lot of that today, and especially today because we have this idea of complete subjectivity of art, where there is no morality in art anymore. There is no such thing as good or bad art. All art is beautiful because it's coming, is the subjective uh, eye of the beholder. Well, that's only true if we perceive art as being completely relativistic like the rest of the universe. But what I think we should be trying to do is to perceive this ancient idea of art as actually imitating a cosmic order. And this in no way whatsoever restricts the creativity on the, on, on the, on the opposite, because what actually happens is that you're tapping into the infinite. Mm -hmm. You're like a, you're like a, a like a, 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 a small container that is being cracked open by the flood of an ocean that never stops. And every time it comes, it's bigger and bigger than it was before. And so there is always inspiration. The only difference here is, is if you are an artist and you are a seeker on a spiritual path, you have, um, 
you're you're like a hair, a thin hair. You see, the Abdul Aziz the Baghdad, the famous wali, he talks about the the he gives an example of what a fat opening is like. He's, he says an opening that a wali receives, it's like a mountain being put on top of a hair. If the hair doesn't have the power to withstand that, that's like someone who asks for the opening without having the 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 power and the light and the foundation to withstand it. It can destroy them, it can crush them. And so if you're an artist on a spiritual path, you're like a hair that has more power than the universe to withstand the 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 creative inspiration. And and it is no doubt artists go through tremendous mood swings. Uh-huh. They do, and they they and and for the longest time, so many people, you know, they used to think that they have problems, like there's something wrong with them. But in reality, they were listening to an, a particular type of inspiration. They weren't taking care of it, and it was making them suffer. Uh-huh. It was and 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 we have a lot of that in the Muslim community in the United States. We have a lot of young people who are suffering. Precisely because they don't have a channel and an outlet to 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 let loose of that. I wanted to to end by just mentioning a beautiful story that I I um, came across while I was visiting the the Art Institute, the Museum of Art Institute in Chicago a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading a book and it was a story where Cezanne, the famous uh, uh, painter. Uh, was thought to have said that any young artist, if they want uh, on the in the beginning of their journey, the thing that they should do is they should go to the museum, and they should look at the paintings and try and find their teacher in the paintings. Mm. And their journey as an artist will be to bring the vision, the unfinished journey of that teacher, their master, to life. Essentially, when I read that, what I got from it is that Cezanne is saying is that uh, uh, a museum is actually a a shrine complex, Mm. that artworks are like shrines. If you're listening to a musical piece, the spirit of the composer is still there. If you're looking at a painting, the spirit of the painter is inside. And it is said that Leonardo da Vinci after he painted the Mona Lisa and he was dying, uh, he hugged the painting. And then uh, the king was there, he saw him. And then after he died, he still had the, he hugged the painting. And so they came to, to like clean the body and everything and they wanted to take the painting. He said, leave the painting with him. I'm waiting for his spirit to go into it. Hmm. And so it's a shrine. Art is a shrine. And it is the purest, it is the purest instance of wilaya for the masses, for people to connect with. And then and, and when you, we know that, then it is it should not be a surprise that really the official religion of, for example, America and the official means of spirituality in America is art mm-hmm. and most probably music. Because for a society that is so inundated with materialism, they're going to seek an outlet through the least material of art forms and try and break out of that. And and uh, the mission now, I think, as it was at the time of the Prophet 
that is not to destroy anything in culture. It is not, and it is not really even to create new, completely new art forms that are so foreign to the culture in terms of the eloquence and the idioms used in the language or the musical melodies, but it is actually a change in perception. If you are able, if we are able to um, help people regard the art they have already produced as being spiritually rooted in a larger paradigm, that will make all the difference in the world. No. Beautiful, man. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, um, and I think there's so much, I mean, we could go on and on about this because I fully, I fully believe that, that, you know, that, that, and that taste of beauty too, you know, one of the divine names is beauty, you know, is God absolutely. is beauty. And so to touch beauty and to experience beauty, to encounter beauty, it really transforms the soul. And I think we also should look at the fact that the way Western society has been transformed um, in, if you think about the counterculture of the 60s and 70s and like the mm -hmm. intense amount of music that came out of that. I mean, even you could look at like the jazz era too, the 50s, because that was kind of the seeds of it. And there was so much creativity. And really what you find in those eras with the music and the art is people really rediscovering and diving into the imaginal realm. And oftentimes it was without a kind of compass. Like it was just like, yes. And you know, then that was enhanced intensely by psychedelics because people, again, which propel you deep into the imaginal realm, into, yes. into the psyche. And so they uncover. And so what they give you, those type of things, they give you a type of yaqeen that, okay, this world isn't all there is. The material world is not all there is. And there's mm -hmm. something beyond that for sure. And so then mm -hmm. what you see that grows out of that uh, is the, the turning east for spirituality and the rediscovering exactly. the spiritual traditions of the West, right? You know, Christian mysticism and the Kabbalah, um, Sufism, Buddhism, the, you know, different forms of Hinduism that emphasize that, that esoteric core from the Vedanta uh, to certain yogic practices. So, you know, this is all related to, to music and art and culture and how that, you know, the fact that there's meditation studios everywhere and that there's, you know, uh, yoga studios and that there's this resurging interest in Sufism and Christian mysticism mm -hmm. and Kabbalah, right? Mm -hmm. It's all related to this. I mean, it's like uh, one of the most important religious pilgrimages in human history, uh, Philip Goldberg argues, is that is the when the Beatles went to India to sit with their gurus. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. that was on Time magazine. That was on People magazine. And all of a sudden, the, these individuals who literally were at the peak of wealth, fame, uh, influence, you know, physical pleasures and, and opulence, they're saying we need something more. And they're turning And that to was that was at the height of their art too. Exactly. That's that's so 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 important. Yeah. And it deeply affected their art. And you could see how that really transformed it. So and you know all of a sudden it became mainstream. 
that people were like, oh, okay, meditation, oh, okay, yoga, okay, these Eastern ideas of spirituality and, and, and things like that. And that, of course, affects, you know, not only music, not only art, but even things which we consider part of the kind of, you know, material aspect of the world perhaps now yes. is, is like like science and, and technology. I mean, yes. right? I mean, the fact that Steve Jobs credits his experience with psychedelics and, and, and like rock and roll music and then going to an ashram in India, it's all tied up in that. He credits that with his crea- creative futuhat, his openings creatively where he was able to create such influential you know, projects and then Silicon Valley and all that kind of, if you look at like the cultural ethos of that, it's, it's also <laughs> deeply, you know, tied into this, the ideas of creativity and the imagination mm-hmm. and, and so, mm-hmm. so anyway, I mean, I think this is fertile and we could talk forever, but hopefully this is just the beginning and we can, uh, we can do more of these, but man, uh, I think that topic is really, is really uh, beautiful. So thank you so much for, for addressing it and suggesting it. No, thank you, thank you. It's 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 always a pleasure, and you know, like um, one thing we I I can end by saying is that it's important and it's fertile precisely because for the artist, their vocation is the entire universe. Like that's their canvas, um, and you know, those are the kinds of people that 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 have the most stake in reflecting back to us what our state is, the condition of the world. And really telling us kind of like where the healing goes. And it's it's an important topic as it was in the time of the Beatles, as it is now, because you know, people are just thirsty. You know, all of humanity are thirsty. And even even animals are thirsty. Like even animals are 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 like doing these really odd behaviors that scientists are telling us. Um things that you know they can't explain through mother nature. And it's like because all of creation is thirsty, it's thirsty for an aesthetic root it's thirsty for an aesthetic spiritual reality for its existence and um I, you know you and i both agree that 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 someone like ibn arabi was really an artist um in the dress of a saint and uh an, an, an artist you know like the beatles and like others they're really saints in the dress of an artist and 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 that's 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 why this subject is so so beautiful. It yields beautiful conversations. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. All right, brother. It's good to talk to you. Next time we'll talk about your research on uh, on Jesus and Ibn Arabi's thought. Inshallah. Inshallah. Inshallah, Habib. Allah bless you. Okay. Salaam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Thank you for listening to Path and Present podcast. If you want to support. The podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support 
financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Not about it.